Well, this morning we are uh, continuing on in our sermon series, Becoming Disciples, Following Jesus Through Matthew. Uh, We've been in Matthew since uh, Christmas Eve, and we'll be staying in Matthew uh, through Easter. And um, the the name of the the series here is is our goal through all of this, right? Like, uh, I know personally, like, I love to get the, the good information, the interesting sorts of things about... Jesus and God and theology, but like I don't think that's Matthew's goal. Um, I think Matthew's goal is that like we would take this stuff and like embody it, incarnate it ourselves, and like begin to live out this way of Jesus in our own flesh and blood. And so, uh, as we said the last few weeks, like that's our goal with this whole sermon series. But um, that's also our goal for this morning. And so, as we get ready to jump into the text, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to gather together uh, this morning. Uh, We're grateful for the gift of this community, and uh, we're grateful uh, now for this chance to uh, turn to the text and wrestle with them together. So God, as we uh, turn now to the text, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us, and we yield ourselves to your spirit. We ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Since becoming a parent, my relationship with time has changed uh, dramatically. Um, There are things in my life that uh, used to take 30 seconds, and now they take, and I promise you I'm not being hyperbolic in any sort of way, now take at least 30 minutes. And all of the the parents of young kids are like, yeah, (laughs) that's why we seem so frazzled 90% of the time. Yeah, 99, how about that? 99% of the time. Uh, so this is really frustrating, right? Because like, like I'm the parent, I'm the one that's supposed to be able to control the situation, right? And yet like here I am like bending over backwards to cater for these young tyrants at times. Yes. Um, and I was talking to uh, another parent uh, recently who has a few more years of experience under his belt than I do. And he said at some point along the way, like he learned that he could no longer keep like trying to fit his kids into his concept of time but he had to like reorient himself around his kid's concept of time, which is really wise advice, right? But it's so much easier said than done. Um, because for up to, up to this point in my life, like I've been wired to have a particular sort of relationship with time and wired to think about time in a particular sort of way and like wired to value things like time and efficiency and productivity in a certain sort of way, right? I mean, we live in a, a capitalistic society that uh, sees the bottom line as like the top value, right? And so like money is the, the most important thing. And yet the way that we talk about time is synonymous with money, right? I mean, we say time is money, right? Yeah. So like time is like one of the most valuable things that we have. Meanwhile, like we think about efficiency and productivity to the point that like most of us carry like what 30 years ago would have been com- called a supercomputer in our pockets, Right. And some of us now even wear these sorts of computers on our wrists, including me, so like, I'm not uh, uh, condemning anybody. But like, we're so ingrained in time and efficiency and productivity that like, we've, we've altered our very life to like, live into this reality. But I've begun to wonder a lot lately, and I find myself saying this uh, phrase a lot lately. What if we have something to learn from kids? <laughs> particularly as it relates to their own understanding and posture and relationship towards time. Because the thing is, like, I, I don't actually think that God shares the same sort of relationship and posture to time uh, that we do. <laughs> so, for example, uh, we see this in Matthew chapter 13. So, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has just 
launched into a long discourse of, of teaching. And Jesus is uh, using the, his preferred method of, of teaching here called parables. So with these parables, he takes the things of the earth, the things that we can get our hands on, the things that we can wrap our minds around, and uses them to point to the things that we can't wrap our minds around, right? Like God and the kingdom of God and what it means for us to be invited into this life of God. And so Jesus is uh, in the midst of all of these teachings on, on uh, all of these teachings through this use of parables. And we get to chapter, er, Verse 24, and we read, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so uh, Jesus launches into a few other parables here. And then uh, when his disciples get him away from everybody else, they're like, hey, Jesus, can you explain this to us? And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus is like preferred term for himself. And the, the good seed that gets planted and grows, these are children of the kingdom. But the, 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 the bad seed, the, wheats that, or the, wheat, or the weeds that pop up, uh, these are children of the evil one. And the one who sows the bad seed, that's the, the, the enemy, the, the devil. And then Jesus says, just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. And I say, I have ears, and I want to listen to that, darn it, right? I mean, this was the stuff that kept me up as a young wannabe good Christian, like this imagery of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth, yeah? It ends on a really scary note. We'll, we'll get to that, um, but let's, let's first uh, look at the, the parable itself. So Jesus says, um, uh, so a, a few observations about this parable. So first off, Jesus says that the, the field is in reference to the world. Well, obviously he's not talking about like the, the literal physical world that we can get our hands on. I think he's here speaking to something like we might call like the soul in the year 2023, right? Talking about like the thing that's like the, the realest part of ourself, the thing that's like the, the truest part of ourself, the, the thing that is often hiding behind the masks and the layers that we put up, the thing that, that hides behind the false self and the ego that we try to build up to protect it, right? And so uh, it's interesting when we, when we think about this parable, like it seems that in some way Jesus is talking about like the nature of the soul itself. And when we, we talk about the soul, we could say, like, there is, a, like, an individual sort of soul, right? Like, I have this thing within me that's, like, the truest, the realest sort of thing. But we also acknowledge that there's some sort of soul that exists in a relationship, right? Like, between you and a partner or a family member or a friend. Or we could say that, like, there's a soul that exists within a community like this, right? Like, there's some sort of, like, real, true thing that, that uh, um, exists among us. Or we could talk about the soul of a city, a nation, the, the world itself, Right? But it seems as though Jesus is talking about like the nature of, of the soul within this, this parable. And it's interesting that when he talks about um, the soul here, he compares it to a field. 
Now, this makes me wonder. When Jesus talks about the soul being like a field, is he doing this because he's talking to an agrarian audience, right? Like people who were farmers, people who had dirt under their fingernails, like people who like, knew what it was like to live off of the land. Or would Jesus have used the same sort of analogy if we fast-forwarded uh, to the year 2023 and plopped him down among a bunch of tech startups in Silicon Valley who have yet to see the sun in their entire life, right? Like, I think Jesus would still have used the same sort of analogy of comparing the soul to the field, even in this modern moment talking to tech startups in Silicon Valley, because I think this speaks to the reality of the soul. See, when it comes to the soul, I think the soul is less of something like a factory. And when we talk about the soul, I think it's a bit more of something like a field. Meaning when we talk about the soul, it's less something that can be manufactured or controlled or dictated but rather it's something that uh, is cared for and cultivated and tended to. I think the soul is developed much less through inanimate means and much, through, much more through like intimate sort of means. Now, if all of this is true then, uh, then I think that this says that this parable talks a little bit about like our relationship to time. So again, if the soul is something that, that can't be controlled, but it's cultivated, then this means that like, the soul kind of exists on its own sort of timeline. It doesn't mean that we can't like, um, help it uh, be cultivated. Like, it doesn't mean that we can't like, do things to like, help it along the way, but it is to say that like, we can't dictate it. We can't control it. We can't like, set out some sort of timeline that's imposed upon it, but rather it kind of has its own sort of timeline along the way. Uh, so perhaps we can think about it like this. In my uh, late 20s, I discovered that I love apples. I don't know why it took me until my late 20s, probably because it was at that point that I realized that what I put in my body affects how I feel. Um, and so apples are much better than you know, the jar of peanut butter that I want to eat um, every evening. Anyways, uh, so I discovered that I love apples, and so I like, started to like, figure out what apple I like. And so we shop at Aldi, so like, there was like three options. I discovered I love Honeycrisp. Love a good Honeycrisp. Yeah, all right. Everybody here loves good Honeycrisp. All right, like Honeycrisp is like a crunchy apple. Like don't, don't bring those soft apples around. Like that's disgusting. But it's like, it's juicy. It's sweet. It's got a little bit of tartness to it. Like it's, it's just the perfect apple, right? It was one day a couple years ago. Um, uh, it was like late, uh, late winter, early spring. I was eating one. And it was soft and it was watery and had no flavor. And I was like, all these really like letting themselves go here, right? And then I thought, well, it's not apple season. So I began to like, do some research on like, how we get produce out of season. It's terrifying. Like, it's grown in other parts of the world where it would be in season, and then it's picked before it's ripe, and then it's like, flash frozen and delivered to us, and then once it get here, gets here, it's like, sprayed with some sort of chem chemical to ripen it up, and then that's what we buy. If that terrifies you, you can just ignore it like I do, so you can continue to eat produce whenever you want. But like, it's kind of terrifying, right? And sometimes it can be like a year old, which is like, oh, that's why that apple was garbage, right? <laughs> when it comes to apples, we can try to control it, but it's not a very good product, right? But apples that are grown and like we eat fresh in the fall, like those are cultivated apples. They're on their own sort of timeline. Again, there's a farmer who's working with it to make it this beautiful thing, but it's, it's cultivated, not controlled. I think that this applies not just to produce, but also to people as well. Uh, my, my junior year in college, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I was a, a resident assistant in charge of all of these freshman guys. And one of my uh, responsibilities was to uh, host a weekly Bible study. 
It wasn't required, but peer pressure within a small Christian college can do wonders to get people in places, right? So most of the guys on our floor would show up in our room uh, every night or every every week. And on one particular night, we split up into groups of like two or three in our room, and we were talking about the passage or something. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but I knew know that when everybody left, I like shut my door, locked it, and was like, oh, I just need some space. Now, sure enough, like, Sean, I need to talk to you. And I opened the door, and it's a guy that I had known prior to him coming to, to college. And so he came in, and he sat down, and he's like, I, I need to talk to you about Pete. Now, Pete was a guy that lived on our floor, and uh, Pete was uh, the son of a pastor. And I hate to say this as a pastor with, like, children of my own, but he was, like, a default pastor's kid, right? Like, he lived into all of the unfortunate stereotypes about making poor decisions and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, my friend is like, I, I need to talk to you about Pete. Like, Did you hear what Pete said at Bible study? I was like, I overheard some things, but, like, why don't you fill me in? Well, well, Pete doesn't know if he's a Christian. Pete doesn't even know if he believes in God. And I looked at him, and I was like, okay. Well, we have to do something about it. <laughs> I said, well, what would you like me to do about it? <laughs> like, my, my friend here wanted me to, like, control Pete's life. Which, trust me, like, I wanted to do, because Pete made some really unfortunate decisions from time to time, right? Like, I really wanted to grab those weeds and, like, rip them out. But I know that, like, that's not how people work. Like, we can't control people. But rather, people are much like an apple, like they're cultivated over time. And so like my posture to, to Pete was like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you space to make these decisions. Certainly from time to time, I'll step in and be like, eh, I don't know that that's the best decision. But like, I'm, I'm going to give him the space that he needs to, to, to cultivate this good fruit in his life. I think we can even zoom out beyond just produce and people to like the world at large, right? I think uh, so much of like our international disputes, and I'll be the first to acknowledge, I am not an ex expert on international disputes or international diplomacy, but I think so often it comes because we're trying to control other people, other groups, other nations, rather than cultivating some sort of goodness that exists between us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, comments on this uh, parable, and he says, would people really like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately? So that our every thought and action were weighed and instantly judged and, if necessary, punished in the scales of absolute holiness? If the price of God stepping in and stopping a campaign of genocide were that he would also have to rebuke and restrain every other evil impulse, including those we all still know and cherish within ourselves, would we be prepared to pay the price? If we ask God to act on special occasions, do we really suppose that he could do that simply where we want him to and then back off again for the rest of time? This parable is all about waiting, and waiting is what we all find difficult. Uh, this is one of those moments where like, I wanted to drop the book because it felt a little too hot to hold, you know? Like, he cut through all of the fluff, and I'm like, you got a little too personal way too quick here, Tom. Nicholas Tom, right, by the way, sorry. Um, now, uh, I know most of us in this room uh, pretty well. Uh, if I don't know you well, or if I don't know you at all, like, there's still one thing that I know that's true about, about you. I know this one thing that's true because you're here on a, at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning rather than doing a whole host of other things like brunch or sleeping. So the one thing that I know about all of us in this room is y'all a bunch of do-gooders, all right? 
And I mean that with like as much love as I can. And that's one of the things that I love most about this community is like we're all a bunch of do-gooders. Like we're committed to like actively working for good. Whether that be in our own life so that like we show up the best that we can in this world, or whether that be like working for good in our neighborhoods, or whether that be working good for good in like the world itself. We're all a bunch of do-gooders. But here's the thing when it comes to working for the good. Working for the good might also require waiting for the good. And I don't know about you, but I can get so incredibly impatient when it comes to working for the good. Like, I plant that seed of goodness, and I come back the next day, and I'm like, did it grow yet? And if it doesn't grow, like, I get really impatient. And if I show up the next day, and it didn't grow, and there's a weed there instead, like, I want to rip the whole thing up and start over again. Like, I find myself getting so incredibly impatient when I'm working for good. Um, There's an organization called the Christian Community Development Association. Perhaps you remember Darren talking about it a few years ago. And uh, one of their teachings is, like, when you start something new at, like, a neighborhood level, like, you don't even look for fruit for at least 12 years. 12 years. Like, ain't nobody got time for that, right? Like, that's a really long time. Like, I want to plant, like, lots of things in 12 years, and I hope that I see a lot of fruit in 12 years. But to plant one thing and then wait for 12 years, like, again, like, ain't nobody got time for that. And yet... Apparently, God got time for that, yeah? See, I'm struck by this, this parable because it seems to suggest that God has a different relationship and orientation towards time than we do. And that when it comes to God's intervention and work in our life and the world around us, that God plays like what we might call like the long game. That God's able to like take a step back and zoom out and see the entire story at once. And so when these ripples pop up from time to time, like these ripples don't seem to rattle God. No, that's not to say that God doesn't care about these ripples. But that means that these ripples don't rattle God. And so where I get really rattled by the ripples, and I either want to like uh, get, get my hands in there and start all over, rip out the weeds and all of these sorts of things, like God doesn't seem to get rattled in the same way that I do. And again, this, this, this parable seems to suggest that like, if I do get rattled by the ripples and I get in and want to start ripping things out, that perhaps this can cause more harm than good. And I'm struck by this commentary by, by uh, N.T. Wright that seems to suggest that like, if, if I really get frustrated with God and want God to like, step in and rip out all of the weeds, that, like, that includes the weeds in my life. And I'll be honest, like, I kind of like the weeds in my life, right? Um, I've, as I've been sitting with this um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, again, I've, I've come to this, this idea that like, when we grow impatient with God's patience with others, Perhaps we could be grateful for God's patience with us as well, right? I'm reminded of um, Jesus' teaching in the, the Sermon on the Mount that says to, to stop paying attention to the speck in your neighbor's eye and start paying attention to the log in your own eye, right? Because perhaps, like, while there are weeds growing in your life, like, perhaps I have, like, a weed-infested garden in my own soul, right? <laughs> Before I start festering in your garden, maybe I need to deal with the weeds in my own garden. So working for the good might require waiting for the good, um, but that requires like a soulish level maturity and trust in God that like most certainly can't be controlled, but can only be cultivated. And I might even add like cultivated within a community like this. Now onto the scary stuff, yeah? Um, the, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the fire, the stuff that kept me up as a young, uh, good, wannabe Christian. Um, we have like three minutes left. We don't have time to get into any of that, okay? Like that would take a whole sermon series to do that justice. But it's an imagery that's there, and so like, I think we do have to be mindful of it. But I think there's also other images uh, that we see in the Gospels that are um, equally as compelling. 
And so one of these comes at the end of John's gospel. So we step out of Matthew, jump into John's story of Jesus. And it comes at the end of John's gospel. And uh, this, we see that Jesus has just been killed on the cross. And Jesus has been buried. And on Sunday morning, we're told that Mary Magdalene, one of his disciples, um, comes racing to the tomb. And she gets there and she sees that the stone has been rolled away. So she runs back and she gets Peter and another disciple and they come rushing back. They run into the tomb and they see that like the body's gone and like all of the the things in their mind are starting to click, all of the teachings of Jesus. And they run home and they leave poor Mary Magdalene all by herself there to fend for herself and try and figure this out. So in John chapter 20, we read, but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. I love uh, this telling of the resurrection story because there's a, a little detail that John slips in here that I think is so easy to overlook. And it's this phrase, supposing him to be the gardener. It's easy to overlook, but I don't think John wants us to overlook it because I think John's given us a, a little bit of a wink here, right? And John's inviting us to go all the way back to the beginning of this whole story, into the opening pages of our scripture, where we see that there were the first humans in the first creation. And these first humans in this first creation were planted within this garden and given this task of being gardeners in this new garden. And we know how the story went, right? We can read page after page of scripture of our ebbing and flowing of living into this vocation. And so John gets now to this first human, not in the first creation, but this first human in the new creation, And this first human in the new creation finds himself in this garden with the same sort of vocation of being a gardener in this garden of the new creation. And this gardener within this garden of the new creation is one who has tasted death itself, who has tasted a weed-ridden field, if you will, itself, and yet has overcome. And so, my friends, uh, when we are confronted by the weeds in our own life and the weeds in the world around us. This, this Jesus, this is the gardener that we can trust to tend to the field of our souls. Working for the good might require waiting for the good. And there are places in our life that are filled with weeds, that are are barren, that, that we experience death, these places that we might even call hopelessness. But in the midst of this hopelessness, like we don't have to try and figure it out for ourselves. But rather, we can learn from, or dare I say, become disciples of this master gardener and trust that this gardener will tend to the field of our souls. And so my friends, may we not get hopeless. May we not give up hope in the midst of all of the weeds in our life and in the world around us. While we're working for good and waiting for good, may we lean in and trust this master gardener, um, to be the one to tend to the to the wheats and the wheel, the the wheat and the weeds within our own lives. Amen.